Hi everyone, I'm Matt. Um, I'm a data engineer in the ML platform team, the machine learning platform team at Shopify. And I've been the, the main uh, tech lead of, uh, to implement a feature store at Shopify. Um, so basically I'm going to talk about that uh, today and, and uh, feel free to, to reach out also on Slack uh, afterwards. Hey, I'm Mike Moran. I'm a principal engineer at Skyscanner. Um, I've been at Skyscanner for quite a while now. It's coming up for 10 years. I've seen a few different changes, but the past three to four years has more been focusing on the kind of machine relevance and machine learning space, which I'll touch on in a minute. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, so to start off this session, I, uh, Matt will will start with a, a talk. Then we have a small Q&A for folks to feel free to shoot your questions. And then we, we pass to, to Mike, which will always, uh, which will uh, as well give us a talk about Future Star as well. So Matt, the, please show us what you got there, please. Yeah, sure. Uh, let me, let me uh, share my, my screen first. So hi everyone. So I'm going to talk about like uh, what we did uh, when we wanted to implement a Future Store at Shopify. Um, I basically want to uh, talk about, like cover three main things is like uh, the different aspect of like choosing solutions. Uh, you can do like in-house open source, you can go with managed services. Um, then we, I want to explain why we went with uh, FIST that is an open source uh, feature store um, and um, how we implemented it uh, at Shopify and what were some of the technical uh, decisions there. Um, very quickly, just to make sure we are all on the same page, uh, Shopify is a um, tech company to make commerce better for everyone. And so today we have like millions of merchants um, using our platform, which means that um, they generate a huge amount of data every day. And so for example, the first use case we wanted to onboard when we wanted to do um, a feature store, it was like, about like two entities or four feature use, but that, that, so that was not a huge use case because there's only 15 features from a ML perspective, but it was on billions of rows. So what was also very important to us is, uh, was how would that scale um, on the offline side of it, like for training or batch prediction, as well as on the online side, side of it, like for um, online inference. Um, so when we wanted to, choose um, a solution, um, we basically had um, three different um, options. Either we go with like a managed service that could be like Google AI platform, Vertex AI for example. Uh, we could also go with like just a full in-house um, service. For example, we are thinking about doing it with Apache Flink and then you just build everything yourself, like all the logic. Um, the good thing with Flink, for example, is like it can process batch of data as well as streaming data. Um, all the other options like um, open source and, and for example, Fist is one of them. So very quickly, um, on the, on the um, managed service, um, one of the problems you can have is, is to have this kind of locked-in vendor situation. Um, so one of the issues that was um, for us is like, if we go with like, especially with the cloud providers, as soon as you want to change or you want to migrate, that would be a real pain um, to do migration for your users. Um, also, especially if you go with like a big managed service, um, you're going to have like issues to um, make changes in their roadmap, even though Shopify is a big company. 
um, sometimes you need features um, that only going to come in six months and then you know you are kind of blocked for for months because of that. Um, so managed services remain a good option if you have like a limited team and you want to go fast and you don't want to do any any infrastructure work, uh, for example. Then the the we we thought about like in house and we explored that um, that option a bit more. Um, what you need is definitely a bigger team because you need to to do like create the infrastructure, create the business logic, create a ton of things uh, in house. One of the main problems is you can drift from the standard practices of the ML community, um, and that's why a lot of tech companies today um, create in house project because they don't have choice, and then they make it open source, um, like Hadoop um, or like um, Apache uh, Iceberg now that was from Netflix. So they really try to make their tools the standard of the community and to not drift too, too much from there. Um, another thing that I think is, is important with in-house solutions when you, you do everything in-house is like you have a very limited scope of assumptions. Um, and, and what is good when you are like, for example, working with like open source projects, like you are challenged for your assumptions and you try to, book, to build things a bit more, let's say long-term. Um, so it remains good when you have very specific requirements or when you can make that, um, you know, open source at the end. And then the last one was open source. For, for us, um, there are other, other issues um, to take, other things to take into consideration. Like if the project is not maintained anymore, you can end up with some dead code. Um, it can be slow to get RFCs or PRs approved. Um, and it can also come with like a lot of unneeded features um, that you don't need or components you will need to support. Um, that remains good option if you have a couple of engineers that can be involved in that open source community and therefore they are, they are willing to like make changes directly to the, to the repo or contribute back to it. So on our side, we decided to go with FIST as our long-term solutions. What we were looking for when we explored those three different options, um, it was first to have like consistency between training and, and prediction. Um, to have a unified API, so what our users want is like to get features for training and for batch prediction and for online inference kind of in a consistent manner. They should not change their code too much to do that. Um, another thing that is important at the scale of Shopify is to reuse feature cross project and across team. Um, and therefore for us, visibility of that was, uh, was pretty important. And the last one, because I, I told you quickly about the, the use case is definitely scalability. Um, so when we, um, when we look at FIST, um, there was this um, diagram of what FIST is about. It's basically a library um, that tried to be plug and play with different uh, store or different like um, systems. Um, and then it will handle things like a registry or it will give you like a unified API with an SDK. And so what was very appealing to us um, it was like the offline and the online store can be, um, are not part of this. This is just a library that connect to both store. So for example, um, at Shopify, we, we use BigQuery, um, but we also use uh, Trino um, or Presto. That is an also, an, also another distributed uh, SQL engine. So we just created um, a community plugin of a Trino offline store, and we just made it available to the community. But that was very important to us because if this was really storing the data as a lot of feature store, it would mean that it would have to handle the scale of Shopify, which was not necessarily um, 
something that would be uh, obvious. Uh, on the online store, for example, another thing that is we have our own key value store. Um, and therefore, what was important to us is to reuse this key value store instead of using Redis or DynamoDB or any other key value stores. And so it's the same. We created our own custom online store. And, and Fist is now able to read our custom online store. That is not um, open source. It's just private code. And this is fine with it. So we really like this plug and play um, uh, ability of Fist. Um, that we could not have with like uh, a managed service, for example, or, or we could not have with other um, solutions. Another thing is like that was important for us is to have this unified API where you, you can fetch features for batch or for online inference in a pretty consistent way. I'm going to get back to that because we still created a thin layer between the Fist API and our users, and we have our own internal SDK for that. Um, and, and I will explain uh, the why of that too. So the why is, is FIST is, so this is how things are done um, in my mind. It's like FIST is like the open source solution. Then we have a Shopify internal library that is built on top of FIST. And we don't really hide that. Like we even sometimes tell our users to check the FIST documentation and we're fine with this. The thing is like our users are going to interact with our internal library only. So that first, if they're unblocked and we can unblock them, if they're blocked and we can unblock them with uh, some quick hack, we're just going to make um, changes in the internal library and then report the issues back to the community and back to FIST through RFCs, um, GitHub PRs, GitHub issues. Um, another thing is like FIST, for example, uh, comes with a lot of features and flexibilities that we don't necessarily want to own. Um, and therefore, we have an abstraction layer that try to um, remove some of the flexibility of this, but at the same time make things much more um, easy to, to use for our users. Um, and that's definitely, a, that was a technical decision for us because you are like, if you abstract too much, what the point of using this? But at the same time, if you don't abstract enough and then FIST make uh, breaking changes in the future, everyone would need to migrate. So it's, there's definitely trade-offs here in this abstraction of like, how do we make sure um, we can do most of the migration and support for, for our users while um, you know, they, they, they have what they need basically. And last but not least, it's like, as I was maybe saying at the beginning of the presentation, it's like when you contribute back to an open source software, you are challenged by, uh, you are challenged um, for, for your assumptions. So for example, Twitter is using this today and uh, Robinhood is using this as well as Shopify. And last time, you know, we had like very interesting conversation with the Twitter people just because we didn't necessarily have the same point of view, which is fine, but it just makes, you know, your assumptions a bit, bigger or like the set of assumptions uh, a bit bigger on your side. Um, so internally, um, how did we really implement that? Um, I think like for us, when we decided to go with this, there were two approaches. Either you go with like a multi-repo approach, so you, you tell our group of users to create a repo and you have like a scaffold, you scaffold everything and, and they, for example, interact with this directly. That was one option. Another one is like to, and, and that option is very appealing also to, to make your users um, owning the code and owning 
um, what they produce so that if there is migration work to do, you are not the team responsible to it, your users are responsible to do it. Another approach is to do more like mono repo, and that's the one we chose um, just because we wanted, like one of the main reasons is because we wanted to um, um, try to get as many uh, features reusable uh, by as many teams. And if it's in the same repo, everyone can see what are the features available. I think at the end, it's also because Fist today does not have a, a web UI. They are working on that. But maybe if there was a web UI, we would have done things differently. But like today, there's one repo where all the features are defined and everyone can you know, say, oh, there's something I, I, I should use instead of creating a new one. Um, and on that note, for example, there's no good or bad answers. I think if I'm not mistaken, the Twitter folks are doing a multi-repo approach. So I, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not one size fits all here. Um, so how our repository is, is um, scaffold or is organized, it's like there's an entities folder and an entity on face is just like a concept, like a user, a driver, a product, a customer. Then there's a features product and those features it's like, where do they come from? I talk about the offline stores, the online stores. So for example, the sales stat feature view. So this concept of the feature view come from um, um, some data like um, uh, batch data in BigQuery and, and some data, data set uh, in the key value store. So, and then there's like a feature service that is more user facing where you say my fraud detection V1 is composed of 10 features coming from different entities, for example. And my V2 is composed of different, um, like of the same 10 features, but maybe with two extra. And therefore it's very easy to just say in your notebook, in your local environment or in your production pipeline to just say, give me my features for fraud detection V1 and then do some A-B testing outside and then compare with fraud detection V2. So those, this is why we also like the monorepo approach. It's because if someone wants to create an entity, they're going to go to this entities folder and say, hey, there's already a user or a driver or product entity. Maybe I should reuse that instead of creating a new one. And same for the features in general. As I told you, there's also this, as I told you, there's also the SDK we, we, we built. And really the, the goal is, is to say, to, to plug all the Shopify logic on, in there. So for example, when you create a feature, um, we created a feature class, a Python class that inherit from the first feature Python class, and we just enrich it. We just add like things that is very specific to Shopify. Um, and we also add maybe validation about like naming or how things should be organized. Like we try to be opinionated here. Um, the good thing with this mono approach um, concept is like, as soon as you merge a PR in this repo, um, all the continuous deployment is done for our users. So like create, like updating the registry, creating data sets somewhere if there is a need for that and, and making sure that those features are like um, available um, to, to all as soon as the PR is merged. And the other good thing with the SDK is like this, our own SDK where there's um, the FIST uh, APIs as well as uh, like Enrich. So the, with the Shopify uh, logic, uh, this SDK is uh, used within the entire ecosystem of, of Shopify, which is like Jupyter uh, Notebooks, uh, production jobs. It can be local environment or even uh, in our uh, Ruby app, for example. 
So for example, today we did not necessarily build um, a panel or like a, this monorepo Ruby SDK, but we could definitely just build a small SDK in Ruby that is doing what we need to do in Ruby. Um, and therefore, we, we kind of try to get the benefit from, from FIST and we try to contribute as much as possible with FIST um, as explained here and, and with the maintainers. Um, but at the same time, have the liberty to, to just like expand that and not wait on them to build what we need, but uh, also just build what we need um, beforehand. Um, yeah, so I think I, I will just let people ask, ask questions. Um, thanks, for, thanks for listening. Feel free to reach out on, on Slack or, or LinkedIn or, or whatever. Um, and, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to answer your, your questions. Thank you, Matt. Great presentation. So who wants to, to go first? I have a, I have a question, Matt. Yep. So um, regarding the scale of Shopify, I, I will assume it's, it has a very large traffic and very sensitive latency requirements. Does this satisfy your need to the, regarding the online inference? Because I, I saw the like fees benchmark recently, it, it seems the improve the performance has been improved. Just 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 curious if that and if if that's an issue inside Shopify. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for me on in online inference, there are two components. There is like uh, the latency when you ask for features, and this is not really in the picture because we have our own key value store, right? This just this is just a library that is going to ask our key value store to fetch the features for the user. Um, so on that side, um, we don't use the FIST server, for example, we have our own like um, online store. So latency is not really a concern or it's not really a FIST issue. Um, and then when I, I think about online, um, online inference, I'm also thinking about like data freshness, where like how fresh is your data in your online store? And it's the same, it, this is like, this happens outside of this. So basically we have like batch and streaming pipeline that populate or, or put the data in the offline and online store with like custom code we, we give them like custom uh, loaders or sync. Um, and then we just tell this, hey, the online data is here in our own key value store. The offline data is here with our BigQuery or own offline store. Just, you know, do the glue, do the magic to our users, right? So in that case, latency and and freshness is really controlled outside of a fist. It's not like fist itself uh, doing it. And that's, that's what was appealing for Shopify because fist does not store the data. We don't rely on the fist infrastructure or the fist component on those critical questions. I see, but um, I wonder like you, you mentioned like Shopify built its own in-house online store, right? Then it, does it rely on, does it still rely on fist to like serialize the data inside, I mean, serialize the data and write them into the online store? Um, no, it does not rely on this for, for that. Uh, we have our own, so basically we have our own connectors or own tools to move um, data from one, um, um, from one storage to another. So from like okay. offline storage to online storage, we have, we have our own pipelines doing that automatically. So this is not really, cool. That being said, what you said is important. It's like FIST is working on this, optimizing this online inference and try to serialize data in a certain way. 
So maybe at some point, it will even make more sense to use Fist and like a Redis cluster um, directly than to use our key value store. Maybe at gotcha. some point, it will make even more sense for Shopify to do so. It's just like we did not start that way for now. Okay, cool. Thanks. No problem. Matt, so the, <clears throat> the internal library is like kind of a subset of the Fist library. Is it like whatever the features needed for Shopify, you had taken as a copy and uh, modified it for Shopify use, is it? Um, I, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of the op op opposite. I think it's uh, like, this is a subset of the internal library. It's like okay. the internal library as, uh, like, as, as a dependency fist, uh, as a requirement, <laughs> right? And then we just like, you have access to the fist APIs, like public APIs, but you have access to other APIs that we built on top of it because they make sense in the context of Shopify, right? Um, so it's kind of more the opposite, like this is a subset of the internal library, yeah. but the internal library is a thin layer for now. Like we don't try to reinvent everything. We try to just like, you know, build the least amount of things, but still we, we still need to add logic or, or, or build things on top of that, yeah. Okay, got it. There's also a question from Victor. Uh, did you guys consider uh, when thinking about multi-repo approach using maybe Git submodels or subtrees to unify the features under a view repo? Yeah, that's, I mean, uh, yes, we considered a lot of approaches. And as, I'm like, as I told you, um, there's no like, good or bad answers on that one. I think we, we, we still preferred um, like we had like, and we had like long conversation on, uh, about that one. We still prefer to do like the monorepo at the beginning to like control also house data, uh, like how people created features and to make sure um, the features in the feature store was like um, met at a certain standard in terms of naming, in terms of like data quality. Like we wanted to make sure that was not a junk uh, feature store uh, or database. That being said, maybe, Especially if Fist at some point build a web UI on top of it, that would be easy to to have like the full like to understand what are all the features available. Maybe at that time uh, we would decide then to just uh, break that model repo and do like a, a different approach. Um, and I think like I need to confirm, but I think David from Twitter that um, that is one of the main point of contact I, I, I have. Um, I think they have do they are doing multi multi uh, repository on their side where you do like uh, you you scaffold project for the users and you do things a bit different. So, you know that's definitely a viable approach uh, too. What's uh, Okay. Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so, do you use a feast for storing embeddings? If yes, how will you rate the ability to store embeddings in Fist and whether Fist is a good option to store and look up embeddings for in inference? Yeah, um, we don't have today a use case doing embedding with Fist. Um, so today it's a no, like we don't do it. Um, I think ideally everything is in Fist. One of the so one of the use, use cases I have in mind, um, they also rely rely on images and those to store like embeddings and images to store can take a lot of uh, space in the in the feature store. And I one of the 
main issue you could have is like maybe scalability of the feature store, like because your data set or your data is going to be way too big to, to, to be really well optimized. And maybe in that case, it makes more sense to not use the feature store. Like my point is today, we don't use um, Fist with embeddings. Um, I don't know if we're going to do it in the, in the near future or not. Um, so yeah, so I don't have a good answer on that. I think if you are curious about that, you should ask any FIST maintainer or ask in the FIST Slack channel um, to, to get good examples of people doing that. And, and you might have uh, some, some people doing it. Matt, I also have one question. I think it was regarding the slide 19, where you showed on your monorepo uh, the feature services and like features. Um, I, I was wondering uh, what kind of like, how do you, uh, regarding that repo, where, how do you persist uh, data if you use like features for that or in like feature engineering, if you could give a, like, do you, the other, the feature services is like a feature engineering code where, and then you persist uh, tables. How do you do it? And uh, also, how do you know, like, um, for example, the more the feature engineering you apply and store the, those features, the less likely it is for a data scientist uh, to, to use it in terms of you may have like feature engineered it too much. How do you tackle these sort of issues? Yeah, um, so that, that's a very good question. Um, I think one thing that we tried to explain to our users on how we would build the feature store or the scope of the project of the feature store at Shopify is that feature engineering is outside of the feature store. That might sound a bit silly, but it's kind of like we have like two tools to do batch. Uh, transformations at Shopify, one in using DBT, one using PySpark. Um, and therefore you do feature engineering with those tools. You make data available in like offline store, online store. We, are, we help them to, to, to standardize um, how they do feature engineering. So for example, we created like a couple of what we call uh, in-house like loaders, like BigQuery loader to make sure that the data is loaded to BigQuery in a certain way or in an optimized way. Um, so we have them in, in loading the data at the right place in the right format. Um, but that remains out of scope of the feature store itself, kind of. It's like all your batch and streaming tools are um, used for uh, creating like features to do feature engineering. Then you help them to go to the feature store, like the offline, the online store. Mm -hmm. In the feature store, really project, you, you, you tell where data lived, okay? Because this is kind of plug and play. It's not the feature store that stores data. So this naming can be confusing. Um, and, and because you just reference where data is, uh, then the, the SDK of the, of the feature store is just going to do the blue and the magic of like SQL query or all these kind of things to fetch data for you. Um, so yeah, TLDR feature engineering is kind of like out of scope of, of our team and we try to help them without like doing it, doing it for them. Um, Got it, great. Thank you. Folks, does anyone have more questions? So, yeah, so the internal research service itself. Oh yeah, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, feel free, feel free to ping me on, on, on the MLOps community um, or I don't know if there's a good channel, Andre, for that, but. Uh, sure, I think I'll, I think there's a, Otherwise, Matt Delac um, over there. Um, maybe it can be in an open public channel for, for more people to jump in. Yeah, actually, you are giving uh, a good idea. Maybe we should open like a channel for feature stores. That would be nice, yeah. for example. 
I'll talk to Demetrius about that. Matt, thank you so much for, for the presentation. Thanks for the it was awesome. Yeah, for yeah, sure. thanks. You. Mike, go ahead, man, please. Sure. Um, so I'm gonna go without any slides. So it's just me talking. Um, and try to keep it a bit lightweight. So what I'm gonna go over is a system called Kaleidoscope, which is kind of something we use internally, which has one face-off is a feature store. And kind of like to explain what that is, I'll kind of go over the history, say we are where we are now, and then we'll talk about some future stuff. So um originally it came from a kind of project inside Skyscanner called Machine Relevance. So about four years ago, we kind of identified we'd, we'd had a few kind of attempts to kind of roll out um, machine learning in different bits and pockets of the company, but hadn't really kind of scaled out. Um, and so partly to take advantage of the opportunity, there's a whole bunch of people that effectively just put together and said, okay, let's focus on uh, ranking problems. Let's try and work out what, what all the things problems are. And that included kind of uh, not just technical problems, but organizational things of how you're recording the right data and that kind of thing. So that's where that's where Kaleidoscope came from, but it wasn't it didn't even it didn't exist at the start. Um, and so the machine relevance effort kind of moved forward. We got to the point where we were kind of we were we'd had a few successes um, as a big group, and we we're starting to kind of effectively decompose into smaller teams and start kind of like point a bit at the architecture and say, okay, that is a thing, kind of thing. So it started to become Obviously, we needed something like a feature store, and we we kind of started implementing that. And um, at the time, four years ago, there was things like Qflow was around, and there was some feature store-ish stuff there, but it was either kind of not basically wasn't robust or kind of like mature enough for what we wanted. So the very first version of Kaleidoscope, before it even had a name, was effectively like a bunch of tables in uh, a, a database in AWS. Um, but that matured over over time to. Uh, later on do things like storing in DynamoDB and what it is now, that kind of thing. Um, but one of the things that happened, like partway through, maybe about halfway-ish through that four-year story, um, there was a, another side of the company that um, is what we typically refer to as the lifecycle teams, basically using uh, marketing tools to target people when they're at particular points in their purchase or kind of their kind of life cycle of, of um, getting a flight, that kind of thing. Um, and we basically ended up with a hole in our system where, we, where we'd gone from one vendor, we going to another, we didn't have any data there, and it was kind of a bit of a pivot where it's like, all right, wait a minute, we've got this thing that's being used for machine learning that is very similar data, very similar patterns we need. Can we repurpose that to also publish to these third-party um, marketing systems? So that's where effectively the second of the two main customers of Kaleidoscope came from was basically... Uh, marketers and that kind of led to us to add capabilities that's more around syncing with external systems rather than um, what you typically find in a feature store. Um, so that's kind of like a very, very important history. Um, uh, one of the things that happened on the way is, is that it got big enough, got a name. Uh, it's also got a logo, which is on the laptop, which was actually done by Andrew, who's on the call. Um, so like, it became a bit more of a brand, a bit more of a kind of like thing, and it kind of became something that lived separately from a machine uh, learning stack. So it's still heavily used as part of that stack, but it's got two, it's got lots of different users, but the two, the two big main users are marketing and, and machine learning. Um, and with a particular self-service focus, it's quite, it was quite interesting listening to some of the discussions about repos because 
we've adopted more of an SDK approach where if you take a data frame in a notebook and you publish that to Kaleidoscope, we will automatically create a schema. We will automatically allow it to be published kind of thing. So we've gone very much towards the, how do you make it as easy as possible for someone to, to basically go from having an idea, getting in a data frame and getting it out into production within like an hour or a day kind of thing. Um, the other thing is, I think another theme that came through in, in Matt's talk was kind of like being a kind of reactor for reusability. So one of the things that you find is that um, there's a nice kind of flywheel effect where if, if someone in marketing has an idea, goes talk to a data scientist, they get them to produce what we call an attribute, which is our equivalent of features, get that into Kaleidoscope. Two months later, someone says, oh, wait a minute. Uh, we could do that as well. Um, and then that gets used in machine learning and vice versa. We've had that happen recently with like some attributes to do with themes of uh, destinations where originally it was created to support a destination recommendation model and now we're using it for targeting in, in our marketing system kind of thing. So it's a deliberate um, reactor for that sort of stuff. And also you know, from a technical point of view, there's quite a lot of cross-cutting concerns. So things like GDPR, and, and where Kaleidoscope sits in the company is kind of on the kind of like internal boundary between internal systems and kind of external usage. And that's where we apply a lot of our GDPR constraints. Though the same constraints apply whether you're using it for machine learning or marketing, like there's different consents that apply, but the logic is very similar. So you get a lot of value of having a single system that does it. Um, and one of the things that it doesn't support right now, uh, because like sort of a real time point of view, uh, we, we very deliberately made a, made a compromise at the start that we would go for very slow-moving data, but large amount of data. So we typically only update data once a day um, when it comes to like publishing stuff. Uh, but obviously that's not enough. Uh, and there's a lot. And again, there's like needs coming in from both machine learning and from marketing of we would like more up-to-date data. So again, there's like a, an advantage to having one system which is used in multiple places for for solving very similar problems. So that's kind of where we are now and where it's going in the future. So the world has changed outside of us. And so there's there's plenty of things that are that are, that are very mature. Feast is one of them. Um, uh, so one of the things that we're considering is effectively doing a bit of consolidation. Um, and one of the things I'm quite a fan of is like worldly mapping. So it's like talks about commoditization, that kind of thing. So one of the ways you could see Kaleidoscope in the future is a bit more of a brand in the sense that a lot of the stuff that we do in Kaleidoscope is about helping internal customers. That wouldn't change if we took the internals and made it be implemented on Feast. So like there's a useful separation between what is the what's the documentation, what's the kind of experience you give to internal customers versus what are you using it right now for supporting them like technically kind of thing. Um, and the other thing is like uh, there's some stuff that that Kaleidoscope is doing where it's kind of becoming a bit of a mini data warehouse, but it really shouldn't be. <laughs> um, so we kind of need to go back and reintroduce some with some other internal systems to take some of the features out of Kaleidoscope and back into it. Um, but, the, but the main thing and what I originally said to, to Andre was that, is that um, the interesting thing about Fiber Kaleidoscope is that the cross-cutting concerns aspect. So there's no, I don't think it's necessarily the case that every company should expect to have their feature store be used for multiple different things. But there is an opportunity there where I think if you looked at your use cases that and talk to your marketers or other similar groups, there's going to be very similar needs and you can maybe dedupe um, your work. Um, 
Okay, I'll stop there. That was a bit of a kind of brain dump. I could quite easily talk for an hour about kaleidoscope, as I'm sure Andrew knows. Um, but I'll stop there for questions. Thank you so much, Mike. Folks, does anyone want to start? Well, I can kick one this one off. Mike, um, when like a data scientist updates one one feature uh, that, for example, imagine that also a marketeer also uses that that feature from the feature store, how do you communicate? Uh, how do you uh, like warn that a feature has been changed and a new version uh, of it has been updated? So, so one of the things that we do is we will do version checks. So, so one of the things that I didn't mention uh, is that. We very explicitly built it for evolution. So um, Clariscope doesn't have a strong opinion about, uh, say, keeping two attributes in sync. So what that means is that um, you can have effectively two versions of your attribute live at the same time. And what we typically do is uh, we don't automatically communicate kind of like there's been a new version. We just make, make it possible for a data scientist to have a conversation with their downstream customers, mediated by Kaleidoscope, to have two versions that undergo at the same time. Um, but one of the things that we do enforce to try and keep things kind of correct is that we will spot breaking changes. And basically, if someone tries to publish, like we, we are lax in some areas deliberately. So for example, if someone can extend the definition of an attribute to add an extra component to the attribute, because um, like our attributes are kind of more more like feature sets than kind of individual features. So we have kind of attributes and components. So we'll add, we'll add, allow someone to add stuff to an attribute. Uh, but if they make a breaking change, we'll, we will like say if they published it by the SDK, the data frame, we would just say, nope, sorry, you can't do that. Uh, you'll have to either create a new version or you'll have to not do what you're wanting to do kind of thing. So uh, to go to your question, we, wouldn't, kind of, we don't explicitly kind of message anyone. That's one of the things that we kind of, we have enough metadata that we could do that. We just, this has not been at the top of our feature list to do kind of thing. But we, so it's more that we, we try to kind of put in the support for evolvability of, of attributes and then kind of like step back and allow the data scientists to talk to the marketers and Cledis was more kind of like sitting in the background helping as opposed to kind of like telling people what to do. Got it, got it. And by, by creating those levels of, if I understood right, if by creating those levels of, like, by extending, you keep, uh, like, it, uh, like maybe you apply some feature engineering, but you also have the previous step. So that increases really the, the likelihood and the probability that you end up, like, having a lot of features that everyone can use, right? It, does, it never reaches a point where you cannot go back to the feature engineering that you applied. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a tricky thing between kind of, um, so there's, I think there's two things going on there because like there's some types of changes that are actually changing the shape of the data, which are more schema changes. And there's other ones where you're just improving stuff over time and you're you're not creating a new shape, but you're just creating a new instance of that for a, for a new day kind of thing. And we tend not to get in the way or kind of potentially try and monitor that latter one. Um, yeah, so you can see your question again because I think I've, got, I've lost the thread. So basically, you keep extending uh, those instances to keep having more and more. Uh, like uh, uh, you still retain the information from uh, like yeah, yeah, because, like, because behind the scenes, it's backwards compatible in the sense that uh, when you read the data, even if you've added a new schema, it's, it's effectively a null. As long as you can have nullability of a thing, then any old components of that thing will look 
MT kind of thing. Um, but there's a kind of an interesting social aspect here of um, there's always a trade-off between the flexibility, the freedom of any particular user, whether it's a marketer or a kind of a data scientist. And um, one of the things that we do do is that um, although although we allow people to automatically publish the SDK and it automatically creates a schema, that still goes and creates a PR in a repo, which we then have to approve before anyone can use it. So it gives a little bit of an opportunity for, for us to go, oh, wait a minute, that thing you're proposing to create looks pretty damn similar to the other thing that already exists. Do you want to be able to talk to them first and before we approve it? Uh, that, 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 that kind of thing. And so there's always a, bit of a, a deliberate tension between trying to enable people so that they can get out of the way and like, get on with it, but then also not, not kind of, the way I then think of it is like, if everyone does like an extra 10% of work, then the whole company benefits and you get a better net, net improvement rather than trying to make any one person's life the easiest. Oh, okay, I have a question. So well, like, well, in, when we are doing a development, we might ha have different kind of transformations. We would have tested it out, right? And for a uh, different client perspective, maybe one set of transformations we would need for one uh, client set of data or something like that, uh, how we can support through Feast? Is it only with the version changes or like with versioning we'll be able to manage or? So I think if you're, if you're talking strictly about Feast, then that's probably more of a question for Matt, I think. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, no, but Matt clearly mentioned that feature engineering part, they have not uh, used much in the uh, Shopify stuff, right? Like Matt or want to take that question? I can, tell you what, I can maybe answer a version of that question based on stuff I've seen for Kaleidoscope, and then maybe Matt, you could have a go at it with Feast. So, like, one of the things about the kind of having attributes with components is that one of the things we find is that um, a producer might produce an attribute with lots of different components. So, one example is um, we have this thing called Origin Preferences, which is basically a guess at your home airport. Now, the original users or usage of that had a fairly complex kind of breakdown of scoring for each destination, whereas um, uh, some consumers only wanted like the top scored one. And so we asked the producer to go, or they asked the producer to go back and add a summary component. And then when that's being used for say marketing use cases, they can actually subset that and only publish that particular component that they care about kind of thing. So, is a roundabout way to say we've, we've allowed more flexibility by allowing subsetting of, of features or feature sets as opposed to trying to support a new feature for every use case kind of thing. Matt, do you want to go at the feast side of that? Um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure I, I completely get uh, your, your question, um, Divya, but maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe we can take it offline, I think, uh, on that side. So, Mike, you can... Uh, okay. I had a question for you, uh, uh, by the way. So, I think if I understood properly, um, this is implemented in Go, right? No, no, no. Uh, this, the, uh, this, all, this is all um, implemented in a mix of uh, Java and Python. Oh, okay, Java and Python. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. So, the, the, the reason I say a mix is because um, well, I mean, it's basically all Java, but like a lot of the interfaces are Python. So what we actually do behind the scenes is that um, because, because a lot of our service stacks, we kind of one, have one face, the, the live face of feature store is effectively a, a kind of protobuf service, the bending service. So 
Um, and a lot of the kind of live stack that we have is Java-based for performance reasons. Um, but the way the data is published is typically from a notebook or from uh, some sort of alchemy job running Python. So behind the scenes, we'll have uh, some stuff that converts the schema from uh, Spark effectively to Protobuf. All of that is in Java. So like, the, so like there's bits of the surface which are different languages. So we've got Python, Python, Java, and Node kind of SDKs, but the core of it is is pretty much all, all Java. Okay, sounds good. I also have a question, maybe for both of you guys, if you want to have a take on this. Uh, like, I still have, uh, it's not still clear to me, what, if regarding performance-wise, performance, performance -wise, how do you decide what sticks to Spark or Pandas? Pandas, probably not. Maybe let's, let's take Spark. And what stays in SQL? How do you, like, manage those two? So I mean, I think I think that maybe goes back to um, something that Matt touched on earlier on, and we, we chat about a fair about internally is uh, so as with as with what Matt was talking about, all of the feature feature generation happens outside of the Kaleidoscope. So Kaleidoscope is the place that it gets saved um, and then can reload it kind of again. Um, and there's lots of different trade-offs around. Uh, so we're just talking internally yesterday um, about how. The, the costs of uh, saving stuff and converting it through pandas and it's not got, not got a perfect kind of uh, story for data scientists right now for both online and online it's like a bit um, it could definitely be improved and there's some bottlenecks there that are to do with pandas and stuff like that but but the tricky thing tends to be that um, for example Spark is very well designed for executing at scale in batch modes but there's not a really good equivalent for online. There's kind of Spark streaming, but that's not as mature as the rest of Spark and, and that sort of stuff. So, um, but it's definitely the case that for us internally, we could have a way better story of that unified kind of um, experience for data scientists. And that's actually legitimately tricky. And that's actually what, why I'm interested in, in the future, maybe going for a more commodity thing, because that's not a new problem Everyone has that problem, so it can be shared and kind of solved jointly. Yeah, I have some thoughts also on that. It's like um, I think what what if you look at like um, NR pipelines, what you try to have is different um, stages that are kind of atomic. I would say so. It's like you want to have a stage that is retrieve features, materialize that, even though sometimes it's not the most efficient way, but materialize that so that then you have your training step or even pre-processing step training and, and so forth and so on. So it's kind of like you can use any feature store that use any backend store to retrieve the features, uh, put that in your data warehouse for us. It's for example, GCS with packet formats, um, and then have your training step reading data and just like do it at scale, but with PySpark or we use array. That is a way to distribute uh, Python code. So, you know, like you, you just don't have to use the same tools from, from all your ML pipeline, right? So I think for us, it's, it's also like this concern is more like what needs to run at scale and what does not need to run at scale and how you just differentiate the, the different steps uh, of your ML pipelines. Yeah. And this is what I wanted to add to that is the, the tricky thing of combining older data with newer data. So like you might have the situation where 
So like it's really typical in, in kind of our domain where people don't come and visit Skyscan every single day because you're not you're not necessarily booking a holiday every single day. So you so but you might still have quite a lot of historically derived uh, attributes for the person. Um, when they come and visit now, do you do you try and represent that as a separate attribute? So you have kind of like the same thing. One of them is like a historical snapshot, and one's a kind of newer version of it. Or do you try and kind of push some of that merging into the feature store. And I think that one of the things that's tricky about the feature store boundary is how much, how clever do you want to make it versus how much do you want to layer on top of it kind of thing. And that's one of those tricky things to keep on coming back to is, is of combining a large amount of older data with a small amount of newly updating data and trying to make the, the easiest experience for a user of the feature store kind of thing. Guys, does anyone have more questions for our guests? And so is it for the invitation, Andres. That was uh, that was fun. That was very cool. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for both of you guys to come and join us. Thanks for organizing. Yeah, I think you can wrap this one off then. Yeah, cool. and feel free to share. Yeah, I'm prepared to share this uh, Slack channel wherever where, where people can ask. Yeah, that I'll, I'll, I'll talk with Demetrius for that. Oh, and the, this I have this recording will be then uploaded to YouTube, and I'll share with you guys the link as well for sure. Yeah, and, and as with Matt, feel free to ask me any questions on on the MLOP Slack. Thank you so much. Yeah, with pleasure. Well, thanks everyone. Have a good day.